Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 597. It is January 31st, last day of the first month of the year, folks. One-twelfth of the year. Seems like it was just yesterday, it was New Year's Day. Bam, gone. Hope you're working on your liberty and independence a little bit every day. Time marches on whether we pay attention or not. And of course it is a Monday and that means we are doing a Monday show which is where you send me your questions, comments, commentary, articles you want me to comment on and things like that to jack at the com. Folks, I get about 400 legitimate emails a day from the audience. About 400 on average. That means if I spent two minutes on every email it would be about six and three quarter hours, six hours and 45 minutes a day just going through emails. So if you want to get your uh, email on a show like this, you will follow the formula. You will put question for Jack in the subject line. You will make your point in one to two sentences. And if you want to give me a background uh, book of information, you will do it with a couple spaces after your point and you will do it below. Uh, that would be the best way to get on the air. If you're doing an article or something, you just send me the link and maybe a couple words on it. But when you're asking me a question, you want to tell me you have three cousins in, in West Virginia or something like that as part of the information, do not bury your question somewhere in the book. I will not get to it. I'm just telling you, folks, it's impossible logistically for me to scan emails like that. All right. Uh, before we go ahead and start answering your questions, comments, and commentary, we've got some great stuff today. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one. Harvest Eating, that's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. If you want to know how to take all of that great vegetables, all those great vegetables you're growing in your yard, all those great fruits, your backyard poultry, all the great stuff you're getting from your CSA or your uh, your local farmer's market or what have you, if you want to know how to take all this great food and turn it into really great food on the table, check out Harvest Eating where Chef Keith Snow specializes in teaching you how to cook seasonally and cook locally. Next up today, Save Castle Royal. Save Castle's an awesome company. Been a sponsor of the show as long as I've had sponsors. Great discount program. $29 one time and for the rest of your life you get discounts on everything else they sell. That is free to members of the Member Support Brigade. Practically covers your first year of Member Support Brigade dues all by itself. They also have everything you could need for your prepping. Everything from long-term storage food to self-defense tools and everything you can think of in between, along with building some of the best hardened shelters you will find anywhere in the world. Check out Safe Castle today. Next up, remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are youtube.com forward slash user slash survival podcasting. Uh, you can find us, of course, on our website. Click on the YouTube link and get to YouTube and subscribe to us there. But we are, the user is survival podcasting. Just put up a video over the weekend. I did a little review of a product called the T-Rex Extreme. It is a pruning blade made to work with reciprocating saws. Uh, I cut down about a four-inch pine tree and just really pushed that thing to the limit of what you should be doing with a reciprocating saw, and it came through in flying colors. I got the blade a little bit binded toward uh, the end of it, but it was because I didn't go on a steep enough angle uh, with the cut in the first place. But check out that video. Check out. I've got about 70 videos up now, and we have quite a few planned this week. Uh, next up. 
Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, including uh, things like I just told you about, the Discount Membership Club, the Safe Castle. It's about 20 other vendors that, uh, that, that, that do that as well. I uh, just have had a, um, a little bit of a dialogue going along with Victory Seeds, and it looks like they're going to come on and support the Members Brigade, and it looks like Seed Savers Exchange will be coming on board. Trying to get them on as quick as I can early in the spring for you guys, because I know this is the time where you want to buy your seeds. So trying to get something out of both of those guys for you. But there's uh, already some great people there like High Mowing that just renewed their support. Uh, real quick before we get into your questions and comments, I want to tell you about a couple shows we're going to have this week that are just going to be awesome. Uh, this afternoon I will be interviewing Paul Wheaton. Paul Wheaton is the founder of Permies.com and RichSoil.com. Uh, so he's way big into permaculture. In fact, Permies.com is the most popular permaculture website online today. Even though he does a lot with permaculture, we're going to have him talk about some other things, like I'm going to have him tell you about a house you can build at your bug-out location for a few hundred bucks that if you were standing on the roof of it, you wouldn't know it was there. How's that for a cool survivalist topic? And some other permaculture-related things as well. So Paul Wheaton will probably be on the show tomorrow, as long as no, we don't have any uh, hang-ups with the interview today. And for episode 600, Clayton Jacobs, who is the creator of the Soil Cube, another person that uh, does a discount for the Member Support Brigade, uh, will be on to talk about uh, starting your plants using soil cubes and about uh, just gardening in general. And he's going to tell you how, get this, he's going to tell you how to heat your raised beds in the wintertime with compost, the compost sitting away and creating a recirculating water system that pumps hot water into your raised beds. Uh, with a little plastic covering, you can grow right through the winter with this method. I was absolutely floored when he dropped this bomb on me. I interviewed him last week, but because he's been such a great guy, I've given him episode 600 is the show he will appear on. So uh, he'll be on Wednesday. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first email. This first one asked me to do something I probably can't do because I am not... Uh, the undisputed uh, authority on all things that's natural and safe or dangerous and not natural or not natural and safe or, you know, what have you. I, I, I don't have a, a degree in chemistry. I can just give you my opinion on here, which we'll see how much uh, Neil likes my opinion since of the way he closes this. Uh, Neil says, Jack, I was wondering if you could close the lid on which materials is best to use for raised vegetable beds. Many people on the internet say that treated lumber is a big no-no, while others say it won't really affect you. Opinions are like assholes. Anyway, I will be putting some in very soon and want to get your thoughts. Uh, <clears throat> well, it's my opinion, and uh, hopefully it's uh, it's better than the alternative. <clears throat> Excuse me, the alternative you mentioned. But uh, <clears throat> here's the reality: uh, most of the people that are objecting to using any kind of treated lumber don't even know what they're objecting to. And that's because they uh, they don't really know that something changed um, almost 20 years ago. It used to be that treated lumber was treated with basically creosote, which they called CCA as a preservative. And the big problem with that is it was a copper-based compound, but it also contained arsenic. And arsenic was the one that really concerned most people because obviously arsenic is a, is a flat-out toxin. And uh, does not belong in, in your food in any shape, form, or amount. Uh, copper, on the other hand, is a trace element. And you can have too much copper, but copper in the body is actually not a toxin if it's at the proper levels. So plants, seeing copper as a trace element, will tend to take up as much copper as they, as they need and not take up excess copper. So I'm not really worried about the copper. So the the new uh, material is uh, called alkaline copper quat, 
or ACQ, and almost any residential landscape timber that you buy today will be treated with ACQ, and it lasts just as long as creosote does, at least that's the claim, and it's supposed to be biodegradable and environmentally safe. I have built my raised beds with landscape timbers, knowing full well that they have alkaline copper quat or ACQ on them. Um, my family is healthy and safe and, 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 and not having any adverse effects. My plants grow very effectively. And I want you to think about this to a degree. When you put these timbers around to build your raised beds and you have uh, water come down that irrigates your crop and, and, and wets your timbers and causes uh, leaching, the general uh, way that things leach will be down and away. So it's not like you're constantly building this stuff up. It also takes a very long time for what's in the wood to come out of the wood. So it's very small amounts over a very long period of time with the general aspect of it leaching away. Additionally, the primary exposed surface is on the outside. Most of the leaching comes from there. So am I saying that none of this stuff's going to get in your soil? No, I'm going to say I don't sweat it and I don't worry about it. And I guarantee you this, no matter what, little bit of that stuff gets into my soil. My food is healthier than what's in the store. So unless you've gone to a point where you're not eating anything out of the store, I wouldn't even worry about this. But that's my opinion. The reason that I use landscape timbers is because they look good, they're inexpensive, and they last a long time. In a perfect situation where you have other materials available, I would avoid it. So as far as what's best, it's what do you have available, what can you afford, and what makes sense for your environment. Uh, in Arkansas, we're using rocks. Why? Because they absorb heat, and that helps the beds get a good early start. And they're everywhere. All I do is walk around and pick them up. We run around, uh, out of what's on our property. We get in the truck, drive down the road, look on the side of the road, and just start whipping rocks in the back of the truck. So they're free. They're local material. I don't have to import them. And they provide a side benefit of looking really good and bringing in additional heat. So it's not about what's best. It's about what's best for your environment based on what you have available to you. But I am not about for one minute to really sweat the fact that I have landscape timbers for raised bed. Despite the people absolutely that freak out on YouTube. Oh my, OMG. You know, they didn't even write out. OMG, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. I can't believe you would use raised bed, blah, blah. And they go on and on. And I just delete their comment and I go on. So that's my take on it. Uh, would I go out and get railroad ties that are treated with creosote? No, because creosote, uh, which again is... Uh, the, the, the chemical term for that is CC, CCA. CCA. If you got CCA-treated lumber, that I wouldn't use because arsenic is a concern for me. Let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. I'm going to be real brief on this one because I mentioned it when I had Baldy and the Blonde on, but this uh, was forwarded to me uh, by Carl, Carla. And uh, Carla and Michael, and I won't say their last names, uh, but uh, it comes from small government news. And... Uh, Actually, I think I can tell you because those are the people that actually write the small government news uh, letter. So it's Carla Howell and Michael Cloud because it wasn't forwarded to me. They sent it to me directly uh, now that I look at it better. And it goes on, and, and I'll see if I can find an online version of it so you can uh, look at it. I'll, I'll even just find a link to another supporting story that tells you this. But this is just what I wanted to explain to you about. I've had a lot of people emailing me over the years that, hey, there are some really good Republicans out there, and they really do want to make government smaller, and they do really want to strengthen debt. And I've always said as a libertarian, they're both full of crap. 
Neither one of them really give a damn about the country or us. They're all out for themselves. And even if we had a great big uh, uh, flip in the election cycle like we did, that whatever they did would be just ridiculous. It would just be stupid, and uh, people would cheer. It is, is massive, and it would be just nonsense. Well, what does this all come down to? Um, let me just read a little bit of this to you. Uh, honorable Republican representatives, last year you campaigned against President Obama's reckless, irresponsible socialist budget of $3.8 trillion. You promised voters to roll back federal spending to reduce the deficit to get the federal government on the path of solvency and fiscal sanity. We elected you to do just that. What are you giving us? A federal budget of $3.7 trillion and a $1.2 trillion deficit, which increases the national debt to over $15.3 trillion. Speaker John Banner is working on a Republican budget that will reduce the total federal spending this year to $3.74 trillion. The conservative Republican study committee representatives are calling for a budget that will reduce federal spending to $3.7 trillion. And, you know, what was last year's spending? About $3.8 trillion. So what we're talking about is about $100 billion, somewhere between $38 billion to $100 billion in cuts. Uh, somewhere between a 1% to 2% reduction in government spending. That's it. So all of the work that everybody did, all the support, all of the things they did to turn the government over to, to, to do the biggest switch in power in history, all of it, and I'm sorry about potentially having my voice crack here. I'm still dealing with this crud uh, that's, that's messing my voice up. I'm doing what I can to get by with it for you. But everything that everybody did, to make the government smaller was to cut less than 1% of total spending. If the compromise is reached, and if we actually do it, because it's got to get past the president's desk. And people are going, well, what, wait, 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 Obama wants to cut too. I mean, he just did a State of the Union address and talked about cutting spending too. Let me tell you how cuts in Washington go. First thing you do to cut spending is increase spending. Uh, this is worse than a car dealer. car dealer increases the cost and then cuts it back to where it was and says it's a deal, right? Department stores do that. This is not how, a government's even worse than that. Government, the first thing they do is increase spending. That way they build headroom. Then they propose spending in excess of that in subsequent years. So we say, this year we spent $3.4 trillion. Next year we're going to spend $3.8. The following year we're going to spend $4.2. Okay? Now this is all back when we're still spending $3.6, $3.4. So the next year comes, and we have a proposed budget of 3.8, 3.7, whatever it is, and we say we're going to freeze spending there. So we've increased it, and then we freeze it. Now we've cut nothing, right? I mean, we look at it that way. The prior year was lower. The year we're in is higher. We've increased spending. We increase it as much as we can get away with, using every bit of political capital and dim-witted uh, you know, redirection of the public that we can. We go up as high as we can, and then we say we were going to go even higher the next year, and in that year we say, no, we're not going to actually go higher now. Okay, So we stay at the $3.8 trillion for one or two more years, and we say, look, the proposal was to spend $4.2. We've cut $400 billion out of the budget. That's how Washington cuts spending. That's the nonsense the Republicans are going to, they're going to play ball with this. Watch what happens. I'll leave it go for now. I just want you to understand when I tell you that they're all full of crap and you got to take responsibility for yourself and the revolution is you, not the sign you hold up and not the lever you pull in the booth, but you and how you live your life. 
This is why I tell you this. Because nothing has changed up there. Nothing changed when we brought in hope and change with Obama. And nothing has changed with the new Republican majority. Nothing will change until we change. Let's go ahead and take another one. All right, we're going to go into GMO foods now. This one's been coming in like an avalanche. I guess every probably fifth or sixth email I've gotten over the weekend has been about this in one form or another. This was the first one, so it's the one I'm going to use. It comes from Frank, and it says, Hi, Jack. This will ruffle your feathers. Love the show. Keep up the great work, Frank. And then he gives me a link to politicalnews.com. And the headline is, Swine Flu Vaccine in Your GMO Foods. Let me read to you a quoted piece in it that comes from InfoWars. Ames, Iowa. Iowa State University researchers are putting flu vaccines into the genetic makeup of corn, which may someday allow pigs and humans to get flu vaccination simply by eating corn or corn products. Quote, we're trying to figure out which genes from the swine flu, swine influenza virus to incorporate into corn. We read it again so you really take that one in. We are trying to figure out which genes from the swine influenza virus to incorporate into corn so those genes, when expressed, would produce protein, said Hank Harris, professor in animal science and one of the researchers on the project. When the pig consumes that corn, it would serve as a vaccine. This collaborative effort project involves Mr. Harris and Brad Bosworth, an affiliate associate professor of animal science working with pigs, and Can Wang, a professor in agrimony who is developing the vaccine traits in corn. According to the researchers, the corn vaccine would also work in humans when they eat the corn or even corn flakes, corn chips, tortillas, or anything that contains corn, like 90% of the food on the shelves in the uh, supermarket, right? Mr. Harris said the research is funded by a grant from Iowa State University's Plant Sciences Institute. That's code words for Monsanto and ConAgra and all the other big agricultural firms, by the way. And it and is their biopharmaceuticals and bioindustrials research initiative, as I said. So add bear in there. Um, if the research goes well, the corn vaccine may be possible in five to seven years. Isn't that great? Uh, even though the flu mutates like every 15 minutes, it's going to take five to seven years to put this crap in our food and tell us it's for our own good. In the meantime, the team is trying to expedite the process. While we're waiting for Wang to produce the corn, we are starting initial experiments in mice to show that the vaccine might induce an immune response. Bosworth, induce an immune response. Gee, there could be problems causing people to have immune responses. Couldn't there? I'm going to let you read the rest of the article if you want to. I'm not even going to go on too much about this thing. I'm not even going to snap out about this. Because I've said it, and I've said it, and I've said it, and any of you that are still asleep with a switch about GMO foods, they won't stop ever now. They will infiltrate everything we put in our mouth with, with their science and injecting these things into the DNA layer of the food with no long-term understanding of the consequences. They'll take this GMO food that they said is proven to be totally safe, we feed it to rats, they get liver cancer, and they die. If you could kill a rat with something, a human being shouldn't get near it. Rats are way more able to starve off things that would kill people uh, than people are. Rats are, are one of the toughest critters on the planet. If you kill a rat with something, you don't want to put it in a human body. And I mean, that's just absolutely fact. So, <laughs> we have to start asking ourselves something here. What are we going to do about this, folks? You know, we just talked, I mean, the reason I had the little government thing right before this, 
You think government's going to fix it for you? You think all the good Democrats or all the good Republicans will get together someday? Maybe even a bipartisan way and they'll fix this? No. You got to grow your own food. You got to take responsibility for yourself. You've got to support your local community supported agriculture that, 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 that promises and pledges not to do this. You know, there's another thing out today. I'm not going to talk about it today other than to mention in passing. The, the, the people are freaked out because the big food the organic elite, like the people that run Whole Foods, have basically waved the white flag with Monsanto and, and, and called for peace, and they're not going to get in the way of Monsanto's GMO initiatives in Washington anymore. Big freaking whoop. They were never the people I was turning to in the first place. You go to Whole Foods, there's GMOs and, and a lot of stuff you're buying there right now. If it doesn't say does not contain GMO, it probably contains GMO. We've got to start dealing with individuals again. We've got to start dealing with our neighbors again. And when we're bringing things in we can't grow locally, we need to understand that the chain that gets the food from point A to point B. And if we stop eating this crap and we let it rot in the fields and let it rot on the shelves, they'll stop growing it. Uh, another little sideline I'll put in here before I go to the next one. Uh, Recently, Monsanto sent a whole bunch of seeds to Haiti. Just tons of them. It's on my Facebook, by the way. You should, you should follow us on Facebook. Um, they sent a ton of seeds to uh, Haiti. said, here, we know you're in, you're in a bad way, and we know that you need to become self-sufficient again. Here's a whole bunch of seeds for free. You know what the Haitian farmers did with it? They burned it. So I'm calling on American farmers. Grow some cojones, folks. Grow some cojones. Quit using the Monsanto, the Conagra, the Bear products, all of that stuff. You know, stop it. It's one thing if you have to use the fertilizers and, and everything else. You know, we understand you can't turn on a dime. You've got the world to feed. Stop using the genetically modified food. We don't want to eat it anymore. All right, let's go ahead and take another email today. This one comes from Kimberly, and she says, I live in the mountains of Colorado at about 5,000 feet. Also in an HOA and not able to move out for seven years. Ugh, sorry. Uh, what is the smallest fish pond I can put in that will actually grow fish that can be used for food? What type of fish could survive in the winter? Uh, we are in zone four and five, but moving towards zone six as this area is warming. Any ideas, Kim? Well, one, um, don't be too confident on the fact that you're warming. Uh, you're not warming as much as you think you are. This winter will go down, especially in your area, to be one of the coldest ever in the history of modern weather uh, studies. So uh, the warming thing is not even true, even if we look at where it's coming from uh, on some levels anyway. We have glaciers growing in Europe, etc. I'm not going to go off on a global warming rant. I just want to, you know, this like we're warming. Like you think you're going to be like a lot warmer next year and the year after. Pretty soon you'll be like Florida. It ain't going to happen. Just we just want to bring that out since I was there. Now, in your question, Kimberly, um, here's your big problem. If you had a pond that was even, let's say, um, uh, fairly large, the size of uh, an average deck. You know, that would be big enough to grow fish in. And in your, your, your climate, you could certainly grow trout, which would be a great fish to grow. Good table fare. And, uh, you know, you're fortunate you're in a place. If it's not deep enough, when it freezes over, it's going to freeze solid. And it doesn't matter how cold, cold hardy a fish is, uh, they can't survive if the water freezes solid. With a conventional pond, you're looking at probably in your area, you want a depth of at least 10 feet, 8 feet minimum, and, uh, to, to run things as a pond where it just kind of takes care of itself, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, 
got at least a tenth of an acre, at least. You know, and, and maybe you could get by with a twentieth and, and have some success with this, but you're going to have to have some really deep points for the fish to overwinter in. Now, the other side of it is you could grow fish in a 300-gallon tank as long as you had it somewhere it was kept warm and you could either practice aquaculture, which is where you're running some type of filtration system to, to filter the chemicals out, and uh, or you could uh, you could do uh, aquaponic system. Now, both of these are going to require something akin to a greenhouse. So it's a matter of can you do this in a way that won't, you know, piss off your HOA. This is why I hate HOAs. If, if you were anywhere without an HOA, I'd just say put a greenhouse in, build an aquaponic system, grow all the fish and food you want, make sure it's south-facing, big set of windows, maybe throw a compost heap inside of there to add some extra heat, uh, maybe build a little chicken coop on the side of it. Let your chickens... See, I can't, t I can't tell you any of that because as far as I know, you can't do that now because somebody decided that, that might decrease the value of their property and sticks their big old blue-haired nose into your business. This is why I hate HOAs. I absolutely despise home ownership associations. I, I think they should be eliminated completely and totally from the face of planet Earth, at least the United States of America. Uh, but since you're stuck with it, I would say that your best bet if you want to grow your own fish is going to be to find a way to put in a greenhouse and do it in a way where either it's just not noticeable um, or do it in a way where uh, you know it, it, it conforms to the regulations of your HOA. And I would always tell you that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission except when dealing with an HOA because they'll file a lawsuit against you, especially if you've invested a lot of money in doing this. Putting a pond in... Um, to put in the size of pond you would need, you're talking about bringing equipment in. That's impossible to hide. So if you're going to try a pond, you're going to have to go to your HOA and say, "Hey, we plan on if you, you know we plan on doing this. Can we get a variance and see if you can get any kind of reasonable um, cooperation with them?" But most of them I found are run by people that have nothing better to do than stick their nose in other people's business. So I'm sorry I can't be more helpful to you here. But my best advice is going to be a 300-gallon or greater set of tanks filtered through an aquaponic system with a small greenhouse uh, positioned in your, on your property in a way where you can get the maximum solar gain out of it. And uh, on the other side of that, you know, uh, making sure that uh, your, your HOA is not really aware uh, of what you're doing as best you can. The other option might be a relatively small, well-filtered pond and some type of natural heating, uh, such as composting, and running some small portion of water through the compost pile with a regulated timer, and then you could probably get away with something like a thousand-gallon pond. If you can keep it from, from freezing solid, then you can grow trout like crazy up there. You're going to have to be careful and, and kind of monitor how much hot water you need to allow in there at a time. Uh, compost piles can get relatively hot. We're talking 150, 160, 180 degree water can come out of a compost pile depending on the stage that it's at. You're also going to have to have compost stage ready to go because as one pile kind of filters out, you need to have another one coming up and ready to uh, to put in there. So that's not a perfect system, but you could give it a shot. I mean, that's about the only way I can think of you'd pull this off. Let's go ahead and take another uh, email. So this next one comes from... Um Orion, I guess that's the email address, Orion, but it doesn't actually have a, uh, a real name. So 
We'll just call him Orion. Orion says, Jack, several episodes ago you mentioned that it's time to begin to worry when somebody stands up and says the economy is getting better and the problems are solved. Uh, did you watch the State of the Union? The answer to that, I watched the State of the Union. I watched very little of it because it made me ill and I turned it off because I couldn't take it. And I watched some stuff on cable TV that was better for my mind on the Discovery Channel. But direct quote here back to the email. Direct quote from Obama's transcript. We are poised for progress. Two years after the worst recession most of us have ever known, the stock market has come roaring back. Corporate profits are up. The economy is growing again. Close quote. Yeah, sort of, but not really, because I said when somebody says this, the people will listen to. And who do they listen to more than the President of the United States? Pretty much everybody when it comes to money. Uh, of course a politician's going to say this. When the people on Fox Business and C-SPAN and all these other you know things and Bloomberg and all, when they start saying the same thing, we're on the precipice of disaster. So when the smart people that know about money say the problems are over, then we're in real trouble, if we get there, if this economy actually can sustain growth. Here's the problem that we have right now, even with my false recovery. Now, first of all, we are very close to my forecast. Uh, we, we've crossed out 12,000 here at least twice now in the past couple days. Of course, we retreated back into the 11.8, 11.7, 11.8, 11.9 range because everybody's freaked out about Egypt. Uh, we'll talk about Egypt. Don't worry, folks. I won't let that go through today without at least talking about it a little bit. But, you know, again, everybody gets concerned because Egypt might change and morph into something we don't understand yet. And that could affect oil. See, what's affecting the markets right now about Egypt is not what is happening. It's the unknown result of what's happening. They don't really care that people are in the street rioting. They don't care who's in charge. The money people. All they care is... Will something happen that drives the price of gas and oil up? That's the only thing the money people care about. And the money people, of course, are the investors, the bankers, everybody like that, uh, the hedge fund managers and what have you. So this is, of course, going to cause a retraction in the market temporarily. But when I said 12.5 or higher for the market a year and a half ago, two years ago, people thought I was crazy. Now the market hit 1,200 or 12,000. It doesn't seem like 12.5 is that far away. Even Mike Gazer came on this show and basically told me I was back crazy, that the, the, the best of the recovery had already happened around 11.4 and it was done and it was going to go back down. And here we're still in this uh, coming back mode. Um, again, my for those that are new to the show and haven't had all this history with me, my forecast isn't everything's going to be super, it's everything's going to be a complete disaster, but we have to go high for us to fall hard. And my false recovery doesn't just just you know follow the Dow Jones and corporate profits like the president did, because those are only one segment of the economy. The other segment of the economy is the people. Uh, how many people don't have jobs? How many people that want jobs don't have jobs? That's a big one. How many of the unemployed are legitimately uh, want to be employed? Whether they're looking or not, whether they gave up or not, really wanted to. If you offered them a job, they'd jump on it. Uh, that section of society is uh, it's probably half of the number. About you know 10% unemployed, it's probably about 5% that are legitimate. Uh, and then there's another 10% of people that aren't in the number. So there's like 15% of America right now that would like a job and are either unemployed or underemployed for, for their capability. That has to get better for, for the false recovery, really, to get momentum. And it could, but here's the problem. I did that article in the piece on Seven Cracks. If Egypt having a riot, which is really all that's going they're having riots in Egypt, that's it. And it's probably going to change the form of government. Egypt, way over in the 
you know, the, uh, the eastern portion, northeastern portion of Africa. Egypt has riots, and this causes a problem. What happens when the, the state of California goes bankrupt? Or Illinois? Or Florida? Or Georgia? Or New York? And you can already see the Republicans that don't have a stomach to bail the states out because they know it's, it's political suicide. I mean, they can get away with only cutting the budget by a hundred billion and say, hey, it's a good start. Right? But they know they can't get away with bailing out the states. And they're trying to figure out some way to avoid this. Because they all know it's coming. Even Texas. Like a $27 billion deficit we're facing. We went from an $8 billion surplus to a $27 billion deficit in two years. Under you know the, uh, the, the great Rick Perry. All of these things, the, 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 the prices of fuel... The cities that are on the verge of bankruptcy. Any one of these, if they open up during this, this false recovery, could, could shit can it before it happens. I mean, that's, it's blunt, but it's the only way I could put it. If we can hold those together another year, and this is why I keep bringing this up, we hold this together another year, it's gonna start to look really, really good. You will see unemployment down by a point or two. You'll see Obama with a chance to get reelected. Don't think it can't happen. Remember Bill Clinton? Everybody wanted to lynch the guy at two years, and you know, two years later, he won a landslide. So, my concern for the American people, my concern for the listeners, is how you handle the rebound, and you don't get sucked back into just believing everything super again. That you never go back on autopilot with your 401k and IRA, and just don't pay attention to it anymore. That you always stay in control and you always pay attention. Um, it's coming. I really believe it is. Every day I, I feel more and more that we're going to have some period that's going to look really, really good. And when that happens, that's when the real danger of uh, disaster uh, comes back. What I'll tell you is this. If we go into a true free fall again, if we go into a period that we had, let's say, between about October of 2008 and February of 2009, if we go through that cycle again with the markets, it will be dramatically worse than what we just went through. And I, I see that coming. And whether that is we get back close to an all-time high or even we break through it or we don't, you know, we're a thousand points away from it, the Dow is just one indicator, folks. It's one thing you have to understand. I talk about it because it's the one everybody looks at. But it's just one indicator. If you've noticed, the Dow has gone from down in like 6,700 a few years ago at its low point uh, in the drop back up to almost 12,000. But unemployment has gotten larger during that period of time. Corporate profits are higher than ever before, but less people have jobs. Why? Because the corporation sent the jobs overseas or eliminated... This is the big one. They eliminated the jobs. This is what people don't understand. At this point, we have to start creating new things for people to do. The jobs didn't just go away because it was a recession. Some of the jobs went away forever. New processes, new automation, new systems came in and replaced the people with systems instead of human beings. They didn't all go to India and China. In fact, many of the jobs that went away during the recession, this is going to be a hard pill for some people to swallow, many of the jobs that went away during the recession were already gone. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Employers, in their benevolence, and within their, their hidden bureaucracy, sometimes intentionally, sometimes through bureaucratic nonsense, were retaining people that were not necessary for the company to operate. 
As evil as we say companies are, when times are good, companies tend to keep everybody unless they do something stupid like rob a post office. When times got tough, a lot of people that were getting a free ride and thought, well, I could just, you know, I'm 40, if I can hang out another 5, 10 years, I can go early retirement with this big 401k or what have you. Or they were 50 and thought, I can make it to 60. You, and you, they've been there 30 years. And the company said, the guy's been here 30 years, we can't get rid of him. You know? There's no, we've got profit, there's no reason to get rid of this guy. He's a good guy. We don't really need him anymore, but he's a good guy. There's lots of people like that. That when this happened, they went, well, sorry, can't do it anymore. That's a big part of what really happened, and nobody will tell you that, because if a politician says that, he's not going to get elected to dog catcher. Well, I'm not a politician, and I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear, and I'm not here to make you like me. I get emails from people all the time, you made me mad when you said, I don't care if I make you mad when I say something. I hope every person that listens to me gets mad at me at least once a week, or I'm not saying anything that matters. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. There's a lot of people, not everybody, and maybe not you, but there are a lot of people who lost jobs in the recent downturn that lost their jobs because their job no longer really mattered. The company did not need them to survive. And as soon as they were let go and the company didn't fall apart and the company began to build again and the business level that they were doing came back and they could still go forward, the company said, we're never replacing that person. So the only way that we're going to have a sustainable recovery, and I don't see it happening due to the seven deadly cracks, if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. If you haven't read my article, please do. I'll put links in today's show notes. Until we close those up, and until we start to create new industry, and new jobs, and new functionality, and new things for people to do, until we become a nation of entrepreneurs that understand that we're all self-employed. I don't care who, I don't care who you work for. You're self-employed. The day your employer doesn't need you, the day you do not contribute sufficiently to the bottom line, unless you work for the government, you're out the door. And even the government is going to have to start making those calls. How does, how does a state that's going to go bankrupt keep from going bankrupt? They lay people off. How does the city, how, how does the city do it? They lay people off. They cut pensions. They cut spending. That's the only thing they can do. We're running to the finite end of the tap of the money flow. And the danger on the downside is severe. This is the time to prepare. That's what I'm trying to say here. This next one's on the global warming front. And I'm not going to rant at all. I promise you I'm not going to. I'm going to let this guy do it for me. And I'm going to let him do it the way only a 73-year-old guy, 72, 73-year-old guy can do. This comes from Greg Cecil. And he forwarded this to me. And this is from Jerry's blog, which is on MySpace. I, Jerry might be the only person left blogging on MySpace. But uh, let me read it to you. It's called This Crazy Weather. I'm 72, going on 73, and I've heard the expression, this crazy weather, since I can remember. Before the atomic age, it meant the coming of the Lord was near. The old wives, along with their favorite preachers, even had Bible verses to prove it. The most common, co common quote was, there will be earthquakes in diverse uh, places. <laughs> I am a Bible fan and respect most religions that try to abide by it. I take exception to seeing it misquoted and blatantly misapplied. I wondered what the aforementioned quote had to do with rain, snow, and wind, or lack thereof. It was a time when someone as young as I was not allowed to ask questions of my elders and betters. So I didn't. One did not want to be accused of backtalk or sass. Of course, everyone brought, bought into it, but a few of those thought it was worth an argument. 
By the time I was 11 or 12 years old, this crazy weather was still around, but with a different cause. It was now all those atomic bombs we were putting off. Soon it became hydrogen bombs. Among the more reasonable newspapers, some effort was made to dispel the myth, but it was uphill all the way. My favorite protest was an editorial cartoon in the Wheeling News Register, uh, I think. It showed a pair of old Indian squaws. It said, we never had this crazy weather, one was saying, until they started using those damn bows and arrows. We still had this crazy weather in the 50s and 60s, but the atomic argument was losing favor to flying saucers with little green men. There was no use in arguing with that, with too many people had seen them, and they knew all about the government's attempt to cover it up. Little green men and flying saucers were still around in the 70s, but they no longer had any interest in causing, quote, this crazy weather, unquote. It was the 70s when all of the scientists, all of them, agreed that we were headed for another ice age and would have to plan for it with the help and cooperation with some sort of world government. It would be redundant to tell you what has happened since then. Global warming has now been replaced with climate change, which is just another way of saying this crazy weather. There's no use in arguing with this new religion. They call themselves scientists. I call them climatites. Their zeal is that the theocrats... Their zeal is that of theocrats, and they are determined to tax the very air we breathe. Carbon dioxide is now declared by our government to be a pollutant. No matter that we create it when we exhale. No matter that neither we nor plants could exist without it. This climatites, the climatites eagerly point out that too much of it could kill you. And I ask how that is different from water. Oops, sorry, I know better than to argue. All these years, it prob it's probably not worth it anyway. As a Christian, I need to accept that I'm saved by grace through faith. And that I believe, uh, that believable and comforting as a climatite, I would have to stop breathing. Screw that. Recently, my barber shop, that's in my barber shop, the subject came up. I had a quiet haircut. I'd come in for a quiet haircut because it's cheaper than buying myself a dog license. I held my tongue until the time to leave and then blurted. I blame the Indians for it. They all looked at me. We never had this crazy weather until they started using those damn bows and arrows. And that's the end of the article. So, I'm not even going to say anything. Man has been around for about 35 years longer than I have. And I, too, remember um, when we were all going to freeze to death and the Ice Age was coming back in the 70s and 80s. I remember it on the news all the time. I remember when all the experts and all the research agreed we were going to freeze to death. Took it a little back, bit back longer for you. I didn't know that at one time the atomic bombs were causing it. Really didn't. I didn't know that before the atomic bombs were causing it, it was in every church apparently telling us that Jesus was coming back. I didn't know any of these things in between. I had no idea that the little green men and the flying saucers were altering the weather. But I believe this guy. Why? Because when somebody's 72 years old and been paying attention that long and they speak, you should listen to them. So, uh, really appreciate that one coming in again from Greg Cecil. And I believe that Jerry is actually his dad. Uh, so check out Jerry's blog. I'll put a post in today's show notes for you. Um, next one. Uh, this is a little bit on Egypt, and I'm going to say my piece on Egypt for now, and then we'll talk about it more when we actually know what the hell's going on instead of all the speculation. Um, this comes from Jake, and Jake says, Is this what will happen to us when things go bad, struck out, get worse? Probably. And it says, Egypt has apparently done what many technologists thought was unthinkable for any country with a major internet economy. It has unplugged itself entirely from the internet to try to silence dissent. And then he's got some links and some stuff like that. Okay. So, here's what's going on right now in the United States. 
Everybody's pointing to Egypt and going, see, Obama wants a kill switch for the Internet so he can do this. Here's the problem with that. It's not about Obama. For the love of God, it's not about Obama. This is what... This is why conservatives were okay with the Patriot Act under Bush. This is why the internet kill switch is okay for all the people at the Huffington Post as long as it's Obama doing it. It's not about Obama. It's not about Bush. It's not about Clinton. It's not about Reagan. It's not about the reincarnated corpse of Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Thomas Jefferson or anybody. It's about power and government. And here's the reality, whether you want to accept it or not, government already could shut down the internet right now if they wanted to. The fact that Egypt pulled it off shows that it can be done. Will they do it? Probably only at the point where the American people take to the streets the way they did in Egypt. See, the problem with shutting down the internet is if you do it, if you do it, you're going to get what they have in Egypt. They are not going to do this tomorrow. They are not going to do this at any time of semblance of normalcy. All right? This isn't going to happen. Because it will precipitate the exact thing they want to avoid. Us snapping out saying no more. See, the biggest thing our government fears is the people. There's the old quote, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. I believe that was a Jeffersonian quote. Let me tell you the secret, the untold secret in there. At all times, your government fears the people. Let me say it again. At all times... At all times, every government fears its people. At all times. If I was going to rewrite something Jefferson wrote, which would be a big step to take. One of, in fact, I would say, of all the founding fathers, the man I most admire is Thomas Jefferson for a variety of reasons. Maybe one day I'll do a show just on Jefferson. But I would rewrite that. That is one thing he wrote that I would rewrite, or one thing he said I would restate. And I would state it, when the people are afraid of the government, there's tyranny. When people are aware of the fact that the government fears them, there is liberty. See, that's what Jefferson missed. Or maybe he knew it himself and he just didn't think people were ready to hear it put quite that way yet. It is not that we need to make the government fear it. It's that we need to make sure that we're all aware of this. That it always exists at all times. In the midst of the greatest tyranny and oppression by any monarch or king or dictator, the worse that that party offends the people, the more it sat in fear of the very people that it oppressed. Saddam Hussein, great example. Why do you think he was surrounded by his Republican guard? Do you think it was to really protect him from us? In the end, maybe. But on a day-to-day basis, it was to protect him from the Iraqi people that he oppressed. Who got closest to killing Hitler? His own people or the Allies? See, government always fears its people. It fears its people in a boisterous uprising, though peaceful, overall peaceful. Burned a few buildings, okay, yeah, you know. But, I mean, these people are not out there tearing everything apart. They're out there demanding change. 90% of what the people of Egypt are doing is completely peaceful. That's why you see soldiers hugging them. And now the, the, the Egyptian government is really scared. See, when you send out your troops to put down your people, and your troops go out and sling their rifle over their back and walk up to the nearest protester and put their arms around them and hug them as a brother, now you're crapping your pants. 
The big lesson for us here in the United States is not, oh my God, what might they do to us? The big message to us in the United States, quit being afraid. Quit being scared. Understand your power. You don't have to take up arms to have power. You simply have to realize they're afraid of you. They're afraid of your knowledge. Why do you think they shut down the internet? Did they shut it down so people in Egypt couldn't listen to Jack Spierko? Hell no. They shut it down so people in Egypt couldn't quickly and easily talk to other people in Egypt. They're afraid. They know that communication is power. And what have the people in Egypt done? Oh, look, the phones still work. Let me use dial-up access. I'll dial Qatar. And I'll use a dial-up provider in Qatar. They're immediately finding a way to get back up. There's something I've been wanting to bring up. There's a movie that everybody that watch or listens to my show needs to watch. You need to go get it. You need to watch it. And you, if you've watched it before, you need to watch it through completely new eyes. Because it's an 80s movie, and it's got all the 80s movie crap with the guy and the girl and all that stuff going on in it uh, that you either love or you hate. It might even have been made in the early 90s. But it's called Pump Up the Volume. Pump Up the Volume. And it has absolutely nothing to do with like uh, what you might think, like the type of music or anything like that. Uh, it's made like 89, 90, 91, somewhere in there. And Christian Slater, young Christian Slater, stars in it. And he plays a DJ. A pirate radio DJ who just starts broadcasting his own message. And all of the things that it brings up and stirs in the hearts of people. And all of the things that are done to eventually try to find him and shut him down. And he's just a high school student. And people think he's an older person. He gets out a message that needs to be heard. And the reason you have to watch this is do you know what made this movie even possible? There was no real internet yet. AOL had not spammed our real mailboxes with little disks and said, put this in your computer. Very few people owned a computer. There was an internet. We all know there was an internet back to the 70s. But there wasn't a public internet the way there is today. We, I mean, there, there was things out there. There were chat boards. In 1985, myself and some of my friends down in Florida had our own board. And we used Commodore 64s. And I had the really advanced Commodore 128D. And we had a little chat board. We had all these other chat boards. And you would get on your, your, your phone modem. And it would go... And it was like a it's like 7200 baud or something like that modem. And all it was was like the, the chat boards that have no pictures, no graphics, no anything. Just text threads. And we, we would communicate that way. So there was an internet. But there was nothing resembling the modern internet available. No one, There was no such job as a website designer. And that's why Pump Up the Volume could even exist. I want you to go watch that movie. I, I know some of you might go, it's an 80s movie, it's a pop culture movie, whatever. Go watch it. Watch it through a new lens. And I want you to realize that the people that made it couldn't even have known the statement they were making because they didn't know what was ahead. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know a day when every single person that had a message could stand up and broadcast it to the world was coming. But it'll show you what it was like before that happened. Because even folks, even people like, like me, my age and older, that remember before the internet, we don't really remember. Check that movie out. And remember the lesson of Egypt. The people have the power at all times. They are only lied to and told that they don't. Every, every group of people oppressed by any monarch or tyrannical government, every group of people, because there will always be more of us than there are of them.
And if we do things the right way, even if we go out and we say enough, and a couple million of us march on Washington peacefully and organized, maybe five million this time, maybe six, and demand change, real change, we do it the right way, when they send the soldier out, the soldier will embrace you because he's your brother. Let's go ahead and take another one of these uh, emails. Okay, um, this one comes from Daniel. And Daniel says, I was reading this and thought about when you broke, brought it up months ago. The portion I'm referring to is located toward the end of the article. Thanks for always putting on a great show, Daniel. And um, the, uh, the article's in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it's called China Bank Outlines Global Plans. That sounds great for us. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Davos, Switzerland, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China Limited will proceed cautiously in its drive into U.S. retail banking as it expands globally. Zhang Jingqing, chairman of China's largest commercial bank, said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, in the foreseeable future, quote, in the foreseeable future, our focus will mainly be on emerging markets which have good prospects for growth. For the American market, we are walking in very, in a very careful way. Uh, end quote, Mr. Jang said on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum meet, forum meeting here. ICBC, the world's largest bank by some measures, last week agreed to acquire an 80% stake in a bank of East Asia Limited, uh, U.S. subsidiary for $140 million. The pact puts into position, puts into position to become the first Beijing controlled financial institution to acquire retail bank branches in the U.S. Bank of East Asia, a publicly traded company based in Hong Kong that has a total of 13 branches in New York and California. So basically, the Chinese are going to buy a bank, and then these 13 bank branches in the United States will actually be owned and controlled by the Chinese. Now, there's still some things to go through. I'm not going to read the whole article, uh, but basically there's some regulatory things to, to hurdle here. And I do want to re read uh, a little bit to you about uh, Tim Geithner and uh, what he had to say and what the Chinese were saying to him. And I want you to hear how a, a, a communist Chinaman starts to sound very, very capitalist here. Um, earlier Thursday, Mr. Jiang joined other Asian and European bankers in a meeting with U.S. Treasury, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner in Davos. Mr. Jiang said he told Mr. Geithner uh, that the Chinese want or Mr. Geithner, I'm sorry, Mr. the Chinese companies want to invest in the U.S. A person familiar with the meeting said Mr. Jang added that he wanted the process to invest in the U.S. to be simpler, to which Mr. Geithner responded that the U.S. welcomes investment as long as it meets regulatory protocols. So Geithner basically says, hey, come on, invest all the Chinese money you want in America as long as you follow our protocols. That's great. Uh, the Bank of East Asia's acquisition deal was, quote, small potatoes, end quote, Mr. Jiang said, considering that Beijing-based ICBC, which is 70% owned by the Chinese government, has an 11 trillion yuan uh, in deposits in China, or nearly $1.7 trillion. So say $1.7 trillion bank starting to buy its way into the U.S. market. Let me read you the end, though. And... Uh, This is the part that the uh, person that sent it in wanted to point out. Uh, Mr. Jang highlighted, African markets is one of his top priorities. The economies of China and Africa are supplementary, he said. We think Africa will become an important driver of global growth. 
Mr. Zhang largely dismissed growing international concerns that China's economy uh, and lending markets are overheating, which could lead to over uh, lead to an even steeper uh, surge in already high inflation. Chinese authorities, including the People's Bank of China, are taking concrete steps. That's a quote: concrete steps to control the growth of liquidity in China's Chinese financial markets, including substantial increases in the reserve requirements for banks. He said, uh, "The big thing there is they're going into Africa, and." This is very, very interesting. Quote, this is a quote from the, the owner or the, the president of the largest bank in China and by some measurements the largest bank in the world. The economies of China and Africa are supplementary. The economies of China and Africa are supplementary. What does that mean? That means that China today views Africa the way we in the West viewed the East 50 to 100 years ago. An emerging market that can be utilized to provide low-cost goods to its own internal economy. A place to go invest and try to control. It's what we did with Taiwan. It's what we did with Japan. It's what we attempted to do with Vietnam. It's what we've done with South Korea. And uh, it's what we would have done with China had we been able to, but we couldn't because we had, you know, complete opposition there in the form of a, a purely communist government, in some ways more communist than the Soviet Union. What does this mean for us? It means that our day in the sun is the complete overlord of the world is over. Does this mean the end of America? God, no. I, I really, people keep asking me about this Porter Stansberry asshole out there that has this video out called The End of America, and in the end, the end of America is to sell you his investment advice. I try not to put people down, I try not to slam people, but this guy's a con artist. Uh, I was on his list too, and uh, I went and looked up some of his more expensive investment programs with independent reviewers and the people that actually paid $6,000 to be told what to buy pretty much said, hey, every trade I made based on this guy's advice, I lost. I would have been better off buying in, taking every piece of advice he had, doing the exact opposite, and uh, I would have come out very profitable if I would have done the exact opposite of what I paid to be told to do. Uh, that, that tells you something right there. But the, not controlling the world is not the end of a nation. In fact, if we really look at it this way, what we we're saying to our government when we say $3.7 trillion is too much money is we don't want to control the world. We want to live our own lives in our own way and be left the hell alone. But that change is going to be very traumatic for a lot of people. And it is coming. And China is the rising global superpower. Does that mean the U.S. won't be a superpower? No. It means we will be a superpower for a long time. As long as we have enough nuclear weapons to end life on planet Earth, there's no way that we're not a superpower on some levels. But on many of the other levels, like complete economic dominance of the world, hey, um, that is that is coming to an end. At least you think that the Chinese are to be ignored. At least you think that changing the status in the in the world and becoming the new global economic superpower is not what they're interested in. Let me read one more statement from the uh, article. And this is Mr. Jiang, Jiang, I can't say his name right, so I'll just call him Jiang speaking. He said he believes the yuan eventually can become a global currency and pop possibly even a reserve currency, something he said will benefit ICBC considering the hoard of yuan deposits it commands. 
So the president of the largest bank in China, and by some measurements the largest bank in the world, says he believes that the Chinese currency could become a new reserve currency globally. That means that's what their goal is. So do we freak out? No. But do we believe everything is super? It'll all be fine. And those, those silly Chinese, they pose no real threat to us. No. And that's what mainstream radio is going to tell you. If you're listening to the typical conservative mainstream radio, whenever anybody brings up China, what do these guys say? Oh, their GDP is smaller than California. Well, California is going to be bankrupt long before China is. And remember, their GDP is only small because they keep their currency massively weak against the dollar. All while using that massively weak currency to buy up land, uh, agricultural communities, mining operations, gold, silver, in Africa and in emerging uh, markets all over the world. Eventually, they're going to have this huge reserve of value underneath them, and all they have to do at that point is decouple from the dollar and say to the world, yes, we would act as a reserve currency if you'd like that. We're no longer attached to that sinking U.S. dollar. We're off on our own, and that currency is going to float up. Now, that would hurt export business in China. So what do they have to do? They have to acquire enough stuff around the world to control imports and exports on both ends. That's what they're doing. This is this is the chess game the Chinese are playing while the American government plays chess with its own American people. This is what's going on. Um, I, I, I want to go on because I've got a lot of stuff. I've got something really uplifting at the end of today's show that I want to share with you. So let's just keep moving on today. I know we're long today, but I, I figured we were going to go long. I, I'm trying to do more emails um, so that more people get heard on the show. So let's do three quick ones that have nothing to do with politics and economics here that are pure prepping questions and homesteading questions and uh, see if I can help you guys with some of that today as well. Uh, first one comes from Yishka, I guess is the, the, the name at the end of this. Yishka. If I got it wrong, I'm sorry, but Y-I-S-K-A-H. And it says, Hey, Jack, I have a question for you. What is the difference of the price of seeds? For example, at the dollar store, you can get three packs of seed for a dollar. At Walmart, one pack for a dollar. At Lowe's has seeds, one pack for two to three dollars. Basically, can I go cheap on seeds? You can, but you don't know what you're getting. Generally speaking, first of all, let's start with the dollar store. Well, the dollar store uh, is, is most likely going to be buying seed that sat in the Walmart shelf or the Lowe's shelf or wherever uh, or any other discount shelf for a full season. And didn't sell. So it's at least, at least one season old, and that's based on how well it was handled. And did it carry over a year when Walmart had it in the warehouse or what have you? So it's older seed. And, and that's one of your bigger risks there. With Walmart, if you're buying park seed or burpee or uh, any recognized manufacturer's seed at Walmart, and you're looking at the exact same manufacturer's seed at Lowe's, and one costs less than the other, you're probably, it's like buying two Wil a Wilson basketball. doesn't matter where you buy it, it's still a Wilson basketball. That said, I don't like giving a lot of business to Walmart and Lowe's for seeds. Um, they're giant box stores, and I don't hate them. Okay, I don't hate, those of you that get like, I can't believe you go to Walmart for anything. Well, you're not very realistic then. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that people need, and Walmart does a good job of providing them at, at really great prices. But they, they deal only with large corporations. And I like when it comes to seeds to deal with smaller companies that keep a lot of these varieties around that we would otherwise lose. 
That said, I mean, companies like Burpee, despite the fact they have some involvement now because they were one of their parent company was purchased by a subsidiary of Monsanto or something like that. I have a lot of organic and really unique varieties of seed, and they've been around a long time. And my grandfather bought Burpee seeds back in the 30s to give you an idea of the longevity of that company. So that type of thing I don't really have a, a big issue with. I'll still use Burpee seed uh, for certain things because they have great seed varieties for certain things. But the reality is when you go directly to a provider like High Mowing, like Seeds of Change, like Seed Savers Exchange. When you go to any of the territorial seed company, Victory Seeds, um, you name it, any of these, these small uh, boutique seed catalogs, Baker Creek, High Mowing, that you get, you get, get a discount from if you uh, buy survival, uh, you have a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you go to any of those, you're getting fresh seed. And you're getting exactly what's advertised. I'm not saying you're not always getting exactly what's advertised somewhere else, but I'm saying you're getting always getting fresh seed. And that's very important because what it's going to do is impact your germination rates. Now, if you're going to grow six pet tomato plants and you buy really cheap tomato seed and you just plant 12 of them and you get an 80% germination rate and you give away a couple plants, it's not a big deal. When you're buying large amounts of seeds, germination rates become extremely important. And that's generally what you're going to have problems with is more uh, of a poor germination rate because the seed was stored improperly. I mean, think about a giant case of seed sitting in a Walmart warehouse unair conditioned for two seasons before it ends up on their shelves. I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm saying that's what can happen. But the one place I probably would not buy any seed from is the dollar store because that's going to be older seed. But in general, instead of worrying about being cheap with seed, I'd worry about the contributions you're making. I need to send an email over to Johnny Max and the Queen at Self-Sufficient Homestead. I've heard Johnny mention several times, man, Seed Savers Exchange charges you $40 just to be able to trade seeds with people. And I need to let him know he's wrong. That's, that's not what Seed Savers Exchange is doing when they charge you $40. Yes, you get access to, and they send you a catalog that's about two inches thick with every member that trades seeds. And you have access to their electronic version as well. And you can find things in there that don't exist in any store. And you can find, you know, by using their electronic thing, you can find not not just find somebody that could trade with you, let's say, uh, purple potted pole bean, but you can find somebody that's been growing them in your zone or in your state or in your area and trade with for them with locally adapted seed because you know where they're producing it. But that's not even what it is. The 40 bucks to join Seed Savers... It's kind of like the MSB. It's about supporting them in the work that they do. It's about being able to provide a catalog every year that has all these wonderful pictures that's so educational. It's about supporting, saving these varieties. Not just saving them individually, but preserving them. No matter how big your backyard garden is, how many different varieties can you really save? If you're lucky, a thousand. I mean, that's... That, that would be extreme because, remember, we have to have separation distances. We can only do so many kinds of squash and stuff like that. It takes thousands and thousands and thousands of people working diligently to preserve these heirloom varieties. And that's why I'm a big fan of buying from Territorial Seed or buying from Victory Seed or buying from Baker Creek or buying from High Mowing or buying from Peaceful Valley or buying from, from any of these, these, these companies that are committed to that. So... If you're going to buy at a retail establishment, I would buy from a Lowe's or a Walmart long before a dollar store, just on age. But if you know if money's not super tight, 
I would look to dealing with some of these smaller places. Even if you just order, and split your orders up. You know, buy a couple packs here, a couple packs there. That's one thing Johnny gets right. He doesn't buy all his seed from one supplier, even if he could, because he wants to support them. So I need to jot off an email to him and let him know about seed savers and what that 40 bucks really does. Let's go ahead and, uh, take a, another call. And by the way, before I go, if you guys aren't listening to Johnny and the Queen at Self-Sufficient Homestead, it's sshomestead.com. You guys should check him out. Um, He was really cool. He used to have a, a beer podcast. He had me on as a guest. And uh, eventually he came up with his own little homestead podcast. Him and the Queen uh, do a really good job with that. So you might want to check him out. Let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. Okay, this one comes to us from Sean. Sean says, Hi, Jack. I'm a pretty new listener. Really enjoy your show. And I've been listening since podcast episode 151. Try to keep up with the show as much as possible. I find it very informative. You've helped me start thinking more about the, the future, how to be prepared for it. I was wondering, though, if you have a 55-gallon bottle of water, how do you keep it clean? Does sitting water go bad? Sorry if you've addressed this. I looked around but didn't find anything, uh, and I'm pretty new at this. Thanks for all your help, Sean. Um, let's put it this way. If you take clean water and you put it in a clean barrel and you seal it, And there's nothing in there that can go bad. There's no contamination or bacteria or anything like that in there. It's a clean, sanitized bottle with clean, sanitized water and sealed. Its storage life is infinite. Now, if anything gets in there that can grow, then the water can go bad. So there is no real concern with storing water. And I have said this on previous episodes, but it, it bears saying again, unless something contaminates it. So, for instance, I was watching a show last night called How Beer Saved the World. And it talked about how the pilgrims uh, viewed beer as the only thing they could possibly drink that was safe. Because the water would become infected. And even when they got here to America, they wouldn't even drink the fresh, pure water out of the streams because they were afraid they would get sick from it. And that was because this was the days before you know Louis Pasteur understood that there was bacteria and that there were things that would infect Anything that could make people sick, that could make, they called it the show, they said, figured out it could make beer sick. That's why some beer came out good and some beer came out bad. And they didn't understand what made water go bad. They just knew if it sit around long enough, it would go bad. Well, it was open and exposed to all kinds of things getting in it, right? Like people washing their hands in the same water they drank out of. And, and really not thinking anything of it. If it looked clear, it must have been good and it wasn't, so water was dangerous. People actually believed that at one time. So, How do we get around this when we know that we can get our water contaminated? Well, one, we practice good sanitation. But another thing is constant rotation. So if you told me I want to keep a 50-gallon drum or a couple 50-gallon drums of water around and I want it to always be safe, potable water where I know I can drink it, I would say hook an inlet up to it on one side and an outlet on the other and run your water. You water your garden or your grass or whatever through it. So basically your water would come out of your, your supply line, go into a barrel, and then come out the other side with pressure. And as long as you keep your, your holes, your, your connecting points, up high on the barrel instead of down low, um, everything will equal out and the water will stop flowing through as soon as you turn the, uh, the supply line off. And you could have hundreds of gallons of water that way constantly flush through, and every time you water your garden or every time you water anything, you're rotating your water. The big thing, though, is don't freak out about storing water. If it makes you feel a little bit better, add a little bit of, of uh, chlorine bleach to the water when you seal it up just to make sure that nothing was alive in there. You can get ratios uh, from all kinds of places online for that. I'll see if I can uh, find some for you today, but I don't even do that. 
We store our water, we make sure the container is clean, and we, we fill it up and we seal it. And what we do is we rotate our water about every six months. Not so much because we're worried about contamination, but we're, as a byproduct, we don't have to worry about contamination by doing this. More because no matter what you store water in, no matter what kind of container you store water in, it's uh, it's going to eventually get some off-tasting characteristics. Uh, even like a plastic that doesn't have BPA in it, which I definitely recommend nothing with BPA. But you'll taste it, it tastes like plastic. So it becomes kind of stale after a while. So every six months, we just take any water we have, and we use it for irrigation purposes and whatnot and refill it. Why? Water's dirt cheap. It's the one thing we shouldn't even flinch about rotating. So just don't stress over it. But yeah, taking a 50-gallon drum, putting it into your shed, filling it up with water and leaving it there for 10 years, probably not a good idea. So rotate your water because it's it's the cheapest thing we have available right now. And the other thing I'd recommend is get a good filter system like the Berkey system. Uh, and that way you can you know really not worry about things to a large degree. Let's go ahead and take a, another email. This one's uh, really just a tip. I'm just going to read it to you and move on from there with a couple comments. It says, Hey Jack, Shugu has a place in my bug out pack. Given the importance of reliable footwear in a shit at the fan scenario, a cheap tube of simple Shugu uh, to make an on-the-fly repair to your footwear can make a world of difference if your sole separates or if you get a rip or a hole or a chunk torn out. I posted this in the forum, but I wanted to submit it here for your consideration as well. Have a great day. Thanks for everything. Chris, uh, Chris, I completely agree, and I never thought of it. His, uh, his uh, subject line in the email was, Important bug-out bag item never mentioned. And when I saw it, I'm like, oh, crap, I bet you I've mentioned whatever he's talked about. Because I, I get stuff like that all the time, you know. I've done like 500, 600 episodes almost now, and people are like, you never said this. And I'm like, well, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, but when I read that, I went, you know what? He's right. I've never even thought of it. Shugu, definitely going in my bug out bag. And uh, the next one I have for you is, uh, I'm going to just be real quick on this because I've actually talked about it before. But I keep talking about how the scientists won't quit, the genetic modifying people won't quit, that they're going to synthesize everything. So uh, since i got so many people emailing this, I'm going to talk about it real quick today before I give you your long-promised, very inspirational, uh, though from many years ago, ending today's of today's show. Uh, headline, this is from Reuters, it's on Yahoo News. South Carolina scientist works to grow meat in lab. In a small laboratory on the upper floor of the Basic Science Building at the Medical University of South Carolina, Vladimir Mironov, MD, PhD, has been working for a decade to grow meat. A developmental biologist and tissue engineer, Dr. Minurov, 56, is one of only a few scientists worldwide involved in bioengineering cultured meat. It is a product he believes could help solve future global food crises resulting from shrinking amounts of land available for growing meat the old-fashioned way on the hoof. Grow in vitro uh, or cultured meat is underway in the Netherlands, Mirnov told Reuters in an interview, but the United States, it is science in search of funding and demand. Gee, what he's saying is nobody wants to give him money to do this, and there's no demand for it. See, in this country, at least for now, if there's no demand for something, it doesn't happen. Uh, and maybe we're not demanding it, dude, because we don't want our meat grown in a test tube. Let me read a little bit more for you. The new National Institute of Food and Agriculture, part of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, won't fund it. <laughs> I wonder why not. The National Institutes of Health won't fund it, and the National Aeronautics of Space uh, funded it only briefly. So, I, mean, I guess since we're not sending people to space, we don't need to grow meat in space anymore. Does this sound like replicators on Star Trek, folks, to a degree? 
Uh, it's a classic disruptive technology, Minerov said. Bringing a new, any new technology on the market, average costs one billion. We don't even have one million. Well, I'm kind of glad about that. Director of Advanced Tissue Biofabrication Center in the Department of Renegade Medicine and Cell Biology at the Medical University. Minerov now primarily conducts research on tissue engineering or growing of human organs. Um, you can read the rest if you want to. Basically, and this isn't the only guy doing it, there's people out there that are trying to figure out how to basically just take a, a, a test tube or a Petri dish and put some stuff together and make it grow meat, and then you're going to eat it. So when I say they won't stop, this is what I talk about. Um, but I do want to end with something kind of inspirational today. I want to make you remember who you are and what you are. I want to, uh, to make you think differently about a controversial subject anymore. Even a lot of my uh, libertarian friends have a big problem with something called the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. Uh, saying, what am I pledging allegiance to? A nation of corruption, bureaucrats, a president, a congress that don't listen to the people, uh, a judiciary that, that, that doesn't listen to the people? The answer is that's not what the Pledge of Allegiance is about at all. We can't solve the problem of this country by turning our back on something like a Pledge of Allegiance to a Republic. We can solve our problems by remembering who we are individually, by remembering what I told you about earlier today. That it's not when a government fears its people, it's about when the people are aware that the government actually fears them at all times. It's about understanding what the word that we start the entire pledge with, I, means. And I don't want to take away from the person you're about to hear from, so I won't tell you what that means yet. But I want to let you, and if you've heard this before, I think you'll enjoy hearing it again. And if you've never heard it before, then I really think that you might hear the Pledge of Allegiance for the first time in a very new way. So without further ado, from quite a long time ago, Mr. Red Skelton explaining to you what the Pledge of Allegiance is really all about. I remember a teacher that I had. Now, I only I went I went through the seventh grade. I went to the seventh grade. I left home when I was ten years old because I was hungry. I used to, this, this is true. I work in the summer. I go to school in the winter. But I had this one teacher. He was the principal of the Harrison School in Vincennes, Indiana. To me, this was the greatest teacher, a real sage of, of my time, anyhow. He had such wisdom. And we were all reciting the Pledge of Allegiance one day. And he walked over, this little old teacher. Mr. Laswell was his name. Mr. Laswell. He says, uh, <laughs> he says, I've been listening to you boys and girls recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester. And it seems as though it's becoming monotonous to you. If I may... May I recite it and try to explain to you the meaning of each word. I, me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge, dedicate all of my worldly goods to give without self-pity, allegiance, my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O oh glory, a symbol of freedom. Wherever she waves, there's respect, because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. United, 
That means that we have all come together. States, individual communities that have united into 48 great states. 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose. All divided with imaginary boundaries, yet united to a common purpose. And that's love for country. And to the Republic, Republic, a state in which sovereign power is invested in representatives chosen by the people to govern. And government is the people. And it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people, for which it stands. One nation, one nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation. And justice, the principle or qualities of dealing fairly with others. For all, for all, which means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools too? Well, it's almost as though Mr. Skelton was a little bit prophetic when he said, wouldn't it be ashamed if we've removed those two words from our schools? I think maybe he meant the entire pledge, but in a lot of our schools, the, the, the pledge has had those two words stripped out of it under God. So since Mr. Skelton didn't tell us what under God meant to him or to his teacher, let me tell you what it means to me and what it does mean to me. Under God does not mean under your form of God or my form of God or anybody's form of God. It simply means that this nation and the people within it are a nation of people that are good and that believe in a higher power of some sort. And that's why it doesn't say under Yahweh or Jehovah or Buddha or Krishna or anything like that, but simply the universally accepted term of God. Because we start out with I, the committee of one, and that's really where the power lies. And that's why it's the first word of the pledge. Now let me address some of you that are objecting right now and say, but our nation is not justice for our all. Our nation this, our nation that. Especially at the time this guy read this. I mean, there was more racism than there is today even, and there's corruption. And there's... Whose responsibility is it? When we pledge allegiance the way that you just heard it, and when we understand the words, what we should realize as Americans and as people is that we are not pledging allegiance to what they have created. We are pledging allegiance 
to the ideal that the nation is supposed to be, and we are pledging our allegiance to that. So whom is responsible to ensure that the nation provides justice for all? Who is responsible to ensure that we are one nation? Who is responsible to ensure that our government remains a republic? Who? I. A committee of one, in Mr. Skelton's words. Those words will stick with me for the rest of my life. I don't remember how, I don't know how much of this presentation I'll remember. But his first opening line, I, a committee of one. I personally, my committee of one, will remember that until maybe Alzheimer's takes it away. Or I die. That's, that's when I'll forget that. And I'll tell you why. Because that says the revolution is you. That's what it means. That's why all the crap that I talk about, And all the things that I, I want you to be aware, but not so that you can get angry and, and yell and chant and scream and think that electing some other clown is going to change it, so that you can change you, your committee of one. That's what it's really all about. The government of the United States of America today is not something that we blindly pledge allegiance to when we say the Pledge of Allegiance. The government of the United States of America today is a direct reflection of the fact that the American people, though brought up in school systems which have them say this, don't teach them what the hell it means. The government of the United States of America today is in many ways a reflection of the people of the United States of America today. And if we're going to change that, as I keep telling you, we have to change ourselves. You're not going to change the way your neighbor behaves by telling him he's wrong. You're going to show him that he's wrong by living a way that you choose and having better results than he does. See, most people are followers. Very few people are leaders. And followers tend to look at all the people they could possibly follow and say, let's see what they're doing. And they go, well, that person's doing this and they look great. I'll follow them. But when they can look to their neighbor and realize my neighbor just does everything different than everybody else does, and he's doing better than me. Maybe they'll follow you. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you a leader or are you a follower? The Pledge of Allegiance calls on you to be a leader. It calls on each of us to be our own committee of one, to be a leader. So the next time you hear somebody tell you, oh, I don't recite that because it doesn't really pertain to what's going on today or anything like that, remember whose responsibility it is. For instance, I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States as a soldier. And an oath to uphold and do my duty as a soldier. And does that mean there's never been a time at which that our government or the military has done things outside of that oath? No. There's been countless violations by government uh, in commanding the military and within the military itself that have violated that oath. But who's responsible, who is responsible to ensure that the oath doesn't get violated? The individual who takes it. The individual who places the hand on the heart or raises the hand. That's who's responsible. When we take the Pledge of Allegiance, we're not blindly pledge alle pledging allegiance to a republic and a form of government. And whatever they say is law. Actually, we're pledging allegiance to ensuring that they do what they're supposed to do. 
We're saying, I, a committee of one, have the power. We're saying to our government, what I said earlier when I talked about Egypt, you don't have the power. We have the power and we know it. You better live in fear of us. We're not going to live in fear of you. That's what I got out of what Mr. Skelton had to say. And I think that I would love it, and it won't happen, but I would love it if every public education institution in America would play that little video for our children. But since they won't do it, who needs to do it? You do. Whether you have your own children, your grandchildren, nieces and nephews, kids that maybe are too young to hear the occasional adult word that I use, go look this up on YouTube. I'll provide you a link. You are responsible. You as an individual. Let our children know what they're really saying when they put their hand over their heart and recite words that have been reduced to dogma because nobody ever took the time to teach them what they really mean. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
show.